0: We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is John Rubino, former Wall Street financial analyst, and author or co-author of five books, including The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. He also founded the popular financial website dollarcollapse.com in 2004 and sold it in 2002 and now publishes on his Substack at rubino.substack.com. John, thanks for joining me today.
1: Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And let let me start by apologizing for the picture quality here. My laptop died um, before we started this. And so I had to switch to another room which is like a, you know, a guest room with a um, maybe not so great computer. So um, hopefully, you know, if we do another one of these later, um, the picture quality will be a lot more professional from my side. Well, it's a good thing
0: we're going for informational quality, yeah. not, not just looks here. I know, <laughs> I know I'm missing some in the hair department, so we, we both leave a lot to be desired maybe. <laughs> of course, John, Bob Moriarty reminded me of you and and it prompted me to to get in touch with you so I'm I'm grateful to to have some of your time today but I was thinking we could kind of start by talking a little bit about you know what kind of shape the consumer is in at this point and how much let's say credit card debt there is in the US
1: well um you know a lot of the macro numbers in the last 6 or so months have actually been pretty good the the big headline numbers like the jobs report and GDP and and inflation you know they all paint a picture of a, a reasonably healthy economy but if you look under the surface it's the exact opposite and, and the the consumer statistics are the ones that really jump out because uh, basically since the pandemic We Americans have been running through our excess savings, you know, in 2020, 2021, we basically stayed home, collected checks from the government, didn't have to pay rent, didn't have to pay student loans. So excess savings build up. Uh, We've been running through those and they're they're pretty much gone. And a growing number of people are putting day-to-day lives or their day-to-day lives on credit cards right now. Um, And What that is doing is causing personal interest expense to spike. So we've got a very low savings rate and we've got interest costs growing dramatically for most of the public. And now that's a recipe for really um, dramatically declining consumer spending going forward. Right. Because people just, um, you know, they don't have the money to spend anymore that they've been spending for the last few years. That's going to slow the economy down. and that's probably going to produce a recession in 2024 that uh, I, I think will kind of come out of the blue for a lot of people because they've been seeing these GDP numbers and consumer spending numbers of, of the recent past that are pretty good, but it's actually not that way. And uh, what we found out basically um, by doing this experiment with massive increases in the money supply and followed by massive increases in interest rates is that a deeply indebted Financial system can't handle higher interest rates beyond a certain point because, uh, for instance, with the government, um, interest costs on the government's debt went from you know two or three hundred billion dollars a year straight up to a trillion. You know we're running a trillion five annual deficit right now, and two thirds of that is interest costs, and it's only going to go up from here. Uh, same thing with uh, personal interest expense; it was uh, maybe three hundred billion dollars a year. Um, two years ago, now it's $600 billion a year with a bullet, you know, it's going straight up. So these are death spiral numbers. And it shows us that interest rates can never go up from here ever again, and that they really have to go down dramatically from here to keep us from just falling apart. And so that's where we are. You know, that explains a lot of what happened with the Fed just lately. And, and, um, when, when you see recession and hard landing predictions, a lot of them are based on the idea that we basically run out of money you know we raise interest rates to the point that it's bankrupting bigger and bigger sections of the economy um and there's nowhere to go but down hard from here
0: i absolutely want to get to the fed and you know all of these pieces that you just mentioned but how is you know this debt load just on the consumer side affecting or let's say manifesting in the actual markets as well. You know, you gave the example of poise for Christmas in one of your recent articles, right?
1: Um, well, people are, are because when you put your day-to-day life on credit cards, right? That's a sign that you're basically out of cash and you're choosing to carry balances. In other words, to, to borrow longer term um, at a 20 to 25% interest rate. So you can't do that for very long without it bankrupt you. And, and a lot of people are in that boat right now. So so yeah, um, lots of things that you would expect to happen going forward just flat out can't happen. You know, car sales have to tank from here. And obviously, people can't buy houses because house prices are beyond the reach of the average person right now. That's why uh, home sales are at like 1995 levels, you know, even though the population is 50 percent higher now than it was back then. Um, so, and, and oh, and and um, we're we're seeing a lot more um, defaults on various kinds of consumer loans, and that's the um, that's the beginning of the process of the consumer basically going bankrupt here on mass. Oh, oh, and student loan payments just kicked in you know that's that's another big factor right now that is uh is causing people to cut back in other ways because all of a sudden you know after not having to pay um anything on their student loans they got this extra 500 a month bill and they were already putting day-to-day life on credit cards so what what does that mean that means you know that person is bankrupt functionally
2: yeah.
1: um and so we're going to see more and more of that going forward and you know i think the guys in the government see these numbers too. And they basically understand it to the extent that they understand anything, which is questionable a lot of the time with those guys. But I think they get that there are some very negative trends. um, And, uh, and that those trends are not going to get better, you know, you're not going to have a a soft landing where these people who have all this credit card debt are suddenly going to go back to spending, like they did before, because you can't go back to normal um, without getting rid of these big imbalances that have built up. And I think, you know, a lot of people understand that. And to the extent that they do understand it, it's got them terrified.
0: So, you know, in, in your view, John, is that what you know really made the Fed react and change its stance here at the tail end of last week? It seems like they've since the the last meeting two weeks ago, that they've almost done a 180 without functionally pivoting yet.
1: Yeah, this was one of the most fascinating Fed months ever. Because on December 1st, um, the Fed chair, uh, Jerome Powell, uh, was saying things like, now I'm paraphrasing here, but he was saying uh, like, you know, we're, we're nowhere near the end of this process yet. Interest rates might have to go up some more. And we're not even thinking about cutting. Okay, he said that on December 1st. Then by December 13th, at their meeting, he came out and said, yeah, we're, we're done raising interest rates and we're going to start cutting rates. We'll cut three times. That's our projection in 2024. Now, in two weeks, that's a huge about face. And, and, uh, you know, I think what happened was they, they took a closer look at the uh, interest cost numbers that, you know, I've talked about already. And they got a phone call. Somebody at the White House, probably the chief of staff, but I'm just guessing, called up Powell and said, listen, um, did you, Realize that 2024 is an election year (laughs) and uh, you're not going to be raising interest rates right up to this election where we need a robust economy in order to stay in power. Okay, so if you want to be part of the financial glitterati going forward, you know, if you want those dinner party invitations and you want the puff pieces from The Washington Post to keep coming, then you start cutting and you start doing it right now. Okay. And so the the Fed, you know, they're made up of bureaucrats. They understand how the game is played. Um, so they've decided that they're done raising interest rates because they just can't do it politically anymore Mm -hmm. and that, um, they're going to have to start cutting pretty soon. And that now it's just a question of when, when does the first cut in interest rates come? And I suspect based on the political pressure that they're probably under, it'll be sooner rather than later.
0: So John. What does that mean for, let's say, the overall economy at this point? Are we facing, or, or do you think we're facing a deflationary period, considering all of these pieces that we looked at, you know, credit card debt, defaults on loans, the housing market being at extremely low levels? How do you see this, let's say, going forward in the short to medium term?
1: Yeah, the debt numbers are definitely deflationary and recessionary. So we probably got, um, you know, a big slowdown in consumer spending and home sales and home prices and car sales and you name it. We got that early in 2024. Um, so that'll give us a recession. In other words, the economy will slow down, then drop into negative growth and we'll have a couple of quarters of that. And, And then the Fed, which is already politically predisposed to start cutting interest rates will start panic cutting. Just like they did in um, 2000, just like they did in 2008. Uh, only, um, now the numbers are much bigger. You know, we're much, much more deeply in debt than we were in either of those previous cycles of of aggressive Fed easing. And, um, there's an election year and geopolitics are really unsettled right now. You know, the Ukraine war is still going on and it could heat back up again easily. And uh, the Middle East is on fire. Um, so we don't want to be tightening and causing a recession into some kind of ge- geopolitical crisis either. So, um, I think the Fed goes back to QT, um, to QE pretty aggressively. In other words, start buying assets to push the price of bonds down. Um, and they start lowering short-term interest rates. And that's the story of the second half of 2024. Um, now, normally the way this works is you would think that, um, equities and other financial assets would just go through the roof as soon as the Fed starts cutting, but that hasn't been the way that it's happened historically. Usually the Fed starts cutting because there's a crisis and financial asset prices respond to that crisis by going down for a while. Cause the Fed looks like um, it's way behind the curve and nobody trusts you know a quarter percent interest rate cut uh, to make any real difference in light of the current crisis, right? So they they sell rather than buy things like equities and houses and pickup trucks uh and so you get a recession even as the fed is cutting interest rates and uh, you know i see no reason for that not to repeat because um, the only thing that's different this time around is that the numbers are way bigger they're much more serious which means that the downturn when it comes could be a, a you know a much bigger deal because there's so much more bad debt out there waiting to blow up so um Second half of 2024 could be worse than 2008. And 2008 was like a near-death experience for the financial markets. So, uh, you know, I I expect bad things. And um, exactly what the details of them are, that's totally unpredictable, of course. But uh, it definitely looks like um, panic will be the order of the day by the second half of next year.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like, you know, your view on things is very obviously the debt is unmanageable at this point and it seems like we have these bubbles just in search of a of a pin you know you, you said the only real difference right now is the amount of debt and it seems like we don't quite have the crisis yet for the fed to respond to so it's it's interesting that they have started using this language of pivoting maybe realizing that they went too far in tightening at some point here.
1: Well, yeah, um, this time around because the numbers are bigger, um, a lot of people expected the terminal interest rate, in other words, the the level of interest rates that starts breaking things, mm-hmm. to be lower than it was last time around, which in turn was lower than the time before that. So it, you know, it seemed like four percent to four and a half percent on the Fed funds rate and uh below four percent somewhere would be the the terminal rate on the 10-year treasury instead we got a little bit above those rates so based on you know the history of these pre- these previous cycles we tightened more than anybody expected or than uh than should have been possible really um so the fact that uh, the interest rates that we hit three or four months ago uh, started to break things should not be a surprise and uh the fact that interest costs on different categories of society's debts really just went parabolic, just went through the roof, was mathematically inevitable. So that this was all going to happen, and uh, and now the only question is what breaks first? Because there's a whole bunch of things out there that uh, that current level of interest rates will break. You know, the the local and regional banks. Um, commercial real estate, insurance companies, pension funds, um, it goes on and on, state and local governments in general. And um, there could be a crisis in any of those or all of those sectors going forward. And the Fed sees that, uh, the Treasury Department sees that. Um, so I, I would think that they're terrified right now, um, although it's, it's possible that the first cut is a politically driven cut in interest rates just the fed acquiescing to what the government told them they damn well better do you know and uh but but i think later cuts are going to be because things are breaking and the fed sees that it better get back to zero to negative interest rates as soon as possible or else we've got something that's going to metastasize into uh, into an economy that's worse than the great recession Uh, and they they see that. They've built themselves a little bit of leeway now by raising interest rates so dramatically. So they're going to retrace those steps maybe just as quickly as they they made those steps in the coming year. So, John, do you think that this time is going to
0: be revised, you know, retrospectively looking at it as the beginning of the recession?
1: Yes, possible. The, the way it works a lot of the time is that, uh, you know, there will be a recession and we'll work our way through it. And then the government will go back to the beginning and say, okay, we're dating the start of the recession from they name a date that six months before anybody was talking about a recession. So it could be that we, um, we date the start of the recession from, you know, now or a little bit before now, but, um, but also, maybe not. And, you know, It could be that those good um, GB, GDP numbers and, and labor force numbers and everything uh, will, even in retrospect, show a growing economy right now, but that that changes dramatically in a hurry. Because I think the fourth quarter numbers that are projected by most economists are already way lower than third quarter numbers. It's, it's looking like 1% growth um, in the consensus right now and on the way down the consensus is frequently way too optimistic
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's possible that the fourth quarter will be when the uh, the recession actually starts in retrospect when we look back at it mm-hmm. but we you know you can't know that and uh, it's probably not very important for for instance an investment thesis like should you be buying um tech stocks now and the answer is Absolutely not. Or should you be buying junior gold miners? And the answer is maybe. <laughs> you know, so I, I think no matter what they say two years from now about the start of the recession, that we still have this intellectual challenge right now of how to allocate capital. Um, and um, whether we're in a recession now or whether that recession comes in June, that doesn't really matter from that point of view. You know, we, we still should be doing, I mean, there's still the right thing to do right now, and it won't matter what the retrospective Bureau of Economic Analysis or the Fed or whoever say about today's economy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting
0: to consider, let's say the financial literacy of most Americans. You know, obviously the listeners of this show are already, you know, well-steeped in a lot of these ideas. But when we look back, there was a poll that you wrote about that was taken Asking most Americans if they would support price controls on goods. So why is that such a misguided idea? And, you know, is it is it maybe a symptom of this time where most Americans didn't have to worry about their finances so much?
1: Well, yeah, the reason why we're a financially illiterate country is that times have been so good for so long that uh, you know, regular people haven't had to think about the the nature of money. And uh, the role of a, a central bank and the maintenance of uh, of a stable financial system, you know, that that's the kind of stuff you think about when things break, and then you have to figure out why things broke. Well, things haven't been broken since the 1970s. This has been, in retrospect, uh, especially for my generation, the baby boomers, this was the best time to be alive in human history. Even though it didn't necessarily seem like it at the time, but it was just an amazingly good time. You know, jobs were everywhere. We we didn't have a world war. Um, after seven, 1972, nobody got drafted into some crazy thing some, uh, on the other side of the world where um we got our legs blown off. You know, things like that didn't happen for most of my generation. Uh so we didn't have to think too deeply about the world because the dollar was just the dollar, it was the environment. Um Capital was available. Credit was available. There were jobs everywhere for, for people like, you know, I could tell you some stories about how easy I had it back in the day that would make millennials just sit up and go, no way. That's not possible. You know, and, and it was because the times were so good. Well, um, how's that old saying go? Um, hard times make strong men and strong men make bad times and bad times or no good strong men make good times and good times make weak men mm-hmm. and so we've we've allowed ourselves to become weak because times were so good uh and specifically i'm talking about ignorance we we allowed us, ourselves not to understand the financial system in which we live um and that poll is a perfect example of that that uh, um it was something like 60% overall of people We're fine with the government imposing price controls to control inflation. And even a majority of Republicans who are supposed to be, you know, small government ideologically uh, thought that was okay too. You know, the vast majority of Democrats thought so. Um, And the reason why, you know, for your listeners who don't know why price controls never work uh, and they go all the way back to the Roman Empire. We've been trying stuff like this over and over again uh and they never ever work and the reason for that is because a given product isn't just one thing you know in the, in the substack that i wrote about it i used tonsillectomies as a an example if you peg ton, a tonsillectomy at $15,000 that misses the point that uh, that procedure involves like 50 different things, right? What kind of anesthesia is going to be used, how many nurses are going to be in the operating room, how long the patient gets to stay in the hospital after the procedure, and many, many other things. Well, if in an inflationary environment, you tell the hospital they're only going to get 15 grand no matter what for that procedure, they're going to go through all the components of the procedure and swap them out for cheaper cheaper alternatives. So the patient suffers. The um, you know the people who are doing the operations suffer because they see what's happening, and life gets harder. Now spread that across the entire economy, and nothing works as well. The quality of everything goes down, um, and life becomes you know third worldish for the people who are under this regime of price controls. Um, that's what we're looking at if the government. Gu- tries just to put a lid on all of today's prices. And, you know, wouldn't be at all surprised if that happens two or three years from now when, uh, you know, when we have our recession, the Fed panics, eases really aggressively, and then inflation picks up back up again. We have another 2022. And the government responds to that with, oh, there's price gouging going on out there. Well, we're going to make that illegal. We're going to protect the consumer. Uh, and then, you know, you get the era of shrinkflation um, spread across the entire economy and things really start to spiral out of control at that point. Well, that's that's the kind of world we've created for ourselves because we've uh, used artificially low interest rates to keep things too easy for too long. So now we've all got to educate ourselves in a hurry. If you don't understand something like price controls, look it up. Educate yourself about it. And next time there's a poll, you say emphatically, no, I don't want the government to do that and vote against people who will do that. You know, that's 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 the challenge that we have going forward. We've got to behave like um, well-educated voters now, which means we have to become well-educated voters. And we've got to do that in a hurry or else we're going to get policies that will, you know, be Argentina level crazy.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's something I've harped on. Time and time again on the show is is the idea of how these incentives end up bringing about possibly the worst ideas just based on getting votes and getting reelected every four years.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, see, if you've got a a populace that doesn't understand what it is government does, it's very easy to... um, Uh, to make promises that you either can't keep or if you keep would be disastrous because making the promise is what uh, gives you power and then you just manage that power four years and then you make another set of promises that you'll never keep or um or will be a disaster if you do and you can kick that can down the road for decades if people don't understand what it is you're doing Mm -hmm. now um What's happening lately is that people are starting to see that the pandemic had a a really, you know, was terrible, or or at least our response to it was terrible. Mm -hmm. But it had one great side effect, which was that it forced a lot of people to confront the fact that their government is incompetent and dishonest. And so it created a whole category of people who used to trust the system and now don't trust it anymore. Uh, So there's this concept called um, the trust horizon that's really important in this process, which is the trust horizon is basically how far out you're willing to put your trust in people. In other words, do you trust multinational organizations because things have been good for so long? And if so, your trust horizon is is extremely um, wide and distant. But if things start to spin out of control and you see that they're lying to you and you don't trust the government anymore, then you you start to trust only what you can see and only the people you can meet. Your your trust horizon shrinks back to your, let's say, your, your governor or maybe even just the mayor of your town and the people that you can look in the eye, shake hands with, and uh, who are operating with policies that affect you. And so you understand them. So you don't, for instance, buy food that's been shipped from around the world um, and been sprayed with who knows what before they ship it to you. You go to your local farmer and you buy from them, and uh, that process goes on and on and spreads through your life, and you start to be basically a prepper. Um, and that's what we're seeing out there: is the trust horizon of more and more people shrinking to the point that they're, you know, they're like old style preppers where they, uh they want to have some dried food in the garage, they want to have their guns, they want to grow their own food, or buy it from farmers who they know, and, uh and so on. So it's a completely different kind of mindset that's taking hold out there. And I think it's a unqualified great thing if that's the way it goes, you know, if, uh, those disillusioned people with very um, small time or uh, trust horizons become a significant voting block, right? it can't be anything but good for the U.S.
0: That's a really interesting point, John. And of course, you know, we're seeing a lot of that change materialize within the within the country since the beginning of the pandemic, as well, with people moving out of these very democratic coastal cities towards. You know, for example, Idaho, as you recently wrote about as well, right?
1: Yeah. You know, you know they they used to talk about something called strategic relocation, which is, um, you know, if the world is going to end, where do you want to live? Okay, this uh, cabin in Montana, so be it, you know, and now that's changing to what um, at least they, they call in a recent survey, political relocation. In other words, people are moving from a place where they're uncomfortable with the general political um, tenor to someplace where they're surrounded by people that they're comfortable with and and uh the survey found that of the people moving from california to idaho 60 some percent of them were republicans so which puts a lot of the fears of Idaho to rest because uh, people in smaller states that are getting inundated with californians are afraid that those people will turn that state into california in other words they'll they'll move to get away from the policies that they implemented in one place and re-implement those policies in their new home uh but that doesn't look like it's it's the way it's working people are moving for political reasons to places where they're comfortable so we're seeing uh, something interesting happen where the um, liberal states are becoming even more liberal because all the conservatives are leaving and the the conservative states are becoming even more conservatives because new conservatives are moving in from uh, from other states that's um I think it's good for the um, the states like Idaho and Montana and Texas and Florida because it means they won't have to change their political systems. But I think it's bad possibly overall for the U.S. as a whole because it really solidifies the differences in attitude. And it means that um, this whole national divorce thing that people are talking about um, becomes – um, something that's conceivable now and that will be incredibly messy if it happens. You know, it's uh, it's a lot better to be a state, or a, a country that just learns from its experiences and evolves politically than to be a country where we divide ourselves up into two blocks that are randomly scattered around the continent. And, uh, you know, you, and it can't be easily divided into two countries. It would take, take like five countries <laughs> to... Uh, um, to, um to make everyone comfortable with the political system in, in which they're living. And uh, that process would be something like uh, what happened with India and Pakistan, where a million people died as they tried to sort things out, you know, we don't want that. But, um but it's clear that people um in blue states, or conservatives in blue states are fed up with what they're seeing. And they're just moving on, you know, and I, I, Totally get the um, I totally get the impulse, and I hope we can manage this transition in a way that's uh, peaceful and respectful for everyone.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it's almost a physical manifestation of the polarization that we're seeing in the country, which is, as you say, really unfortunate. And I remember speaking to a border guard actually in Whitefish, Montana, and he was talking about the amount of Californians that had recently moved. To whitefish. And later on in the conversation, he thought that maybe if you move states, you should have to wait, let's say, I think he said something like a period of 10 years before you're allowed to vote in that state, just to be able to absorb and understand the political sentiment and the actual, you know, on the ground attitude of the people rather than just bringing your politics from another place
1: yeah I think that policy would get um seventy percent of the vote if it was held in some place like Idaho or Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's unconstitutional, so that that um that could never happen. Course, yeah. but uh, there's a uh, you know the Babylon bee right they mm-hmm. They have a a great series of videos about Californians moving to Texas. And the process they go through, you know, at first they're just petrified. Somebody walks down the street with a, a gun on their hip, and they uh, they want to move back to LA right away. But by the end, they're uh, they're eating barbecue and, and shooting guns. <laughs> so so they uh, you know they adapt to their new culture, and it works out. And hopefully, that's the way it goes. If you're you know if you're going to move, I think with immigration in general, and I'm talking national and state to state, I think if you move somewhere. Um, it's not your right to impose your previous culture on the place you move to. You should assimilate. You know that's just basic good manners when you move somewhere. You you go to a place. If you if you go to a new place, you accept the um, the implicit mores of that new place, and you become one of them. You don't force them to become one of you. You know, and that, hopefully that's how it works most of the time in the U.S. with both. Um, immigrants that come across the Mexican border and people that leave California and go to Idaho, Montana, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So
0: John, I want to get back to what the Fed speak, what this pivot talk all means for gold. Is this typically the time that gold really starts to run is when the Fed realizes that it went too far and ends up having to turn back?
1: Historically, it is. Um, Incrementum posted a really good chart a while ago, which is one of the ones that I, I forwarded to you. Uh, about what happens to gold when the Fed stops raising interest rates. And there have been three times previously on that chart. Each time, gold had a really nice run beginning when the Fed stopped tightening. So um, there was still a recession ahead in each of those times. There was still you know, a lot of panic in the financial markets. But gold did very well. Um, and I think the reason for that is, is kind of obviously gold is something you, uh, you hide out in when you're panicked. And when everybody panics, um, gold is one of the things that everybody picks up on. So I I think that um, it, it's reasonable to expect something like that to happen again, uh, this time around. And, you know, we've seen gold really pop. Um, just at the same time that the Fed was um, w- was intimating that it wasn't going to raise interest rates anymore. And, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that that's the reason this time in the moment, because we're in the uh, the strong seasonal part of, of the gold market. Usually in December, January, and February, um, Asian buying for Asian weddings um, puts a little tailwind uh, behind gold, and it does pretty well. Um, and the world is just a, a generally uns, unsettled place. So there's no reason to think that uh, a lot of people aren't looking at the Middle East or uh, Ukraine and thinking, okay, I, I need some safe haven assets and buying gold for that reason. But whatever the reason, um, gold's doing well lately and it's adhering to the, that historical chart that said it should do well, not that the feds not raising interest rates anymore. So I, I think in general, there, there are two big, Um, kind of mutually exclusive ways for gold for for gold to go in 2024 and one is that uh, we have a a major break in the stock market and it pulls everything else down so we get an early 2008 kind of market where stocks tank and gold and silver tank and and then um, gold and silver take off with a they they bounce off of a v bottom and just rocket um after that or uh, gold and silver just take off right now and uh, and have another in their nice runs where we break through resistance at uh 2000 decisively and there's no more resistance till 2020 or till uh, 2500 and if we break to the 2500 then there's no real resistance until 3000 and then that's the next couple of years for gold so i think either way we we get to that point where we're talking about um is there um is there resistance at 3000 you know we'll have that conversation sometime in the next few years and then we'll see you know but I think um given the numbers given the the chaos in the world right now that 2500 is almost a no-brainer for gold and that translates into 50 dollars silver again at a minimum so I, I think for precious metals um the world is a uh, world's a horrendous place, which is good for precious metals. You know. And I, I think that's probably the story of at least the year ahead, maybe the next five or so years. Mm-hmm. John, why
0: is this $2,000 level in gold so important and show so much volatility around?
1: Well, the, the human brain likes big round numbers. And uh, that's the way trading in most assets work is that uh, people who have embedded profits That they can decide when to take they they tend to take those profits at a big round number they'll say you know with gold if gold is 1850 and moving up people say all right when it gets to 2000 you know i'll take some profits and so um using gold as a continuing example here uh, example here gold gets up to 2000 and then gets smacked back down by all the buying and then it consolidates for a while and it tries again and gets smacked back down um and it eventually though exhausts all the selling you know all the people who bought at uh, 1100 and 1400 um they they get done taking their profits at 2000 and that clears out the potential selling and then um the the asset gold in this case goes up to the next resistance which is you know light resistance at 2100 light resistance at 2200 and then really not much else before 2500 so gold has bounced off of 2000 four times in the last three years. And the question is, did that exhaust the resistance selling, the profit taking? And I think there's a decent chance that the answer is yes. And there's no guarantee, but I think that's possible. And uh, so I think we'll know when we pierce 2100, for instance, and then it corrects a little bit, but it doesn't go back the below 2000. So at that point, 2000 becomes support. And you're in the next stage of a bull market. And, uh, again, you know, that decent chance that that happens pretty soon. So we could see that in the next, um, six months to a year where we start talking about 2000 as support instead of resistance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that means the next leg up is probably coming and it might be a really fun one.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, seeing, seeing this as the first time we're speaking, John, how do you weigh in on the manipulation debate? You know, We've seen, as you said, we get up above 2000 and use the word smack back down. So I think it's always interesting to get these different viewpoints just to try and understand how somebody like you that's been looking at gold for so many years sees these price levels and the action well, there, around them.
1: There's several different kinds of manipulation in the market, and there's one where uh, bank trading desks just play with assets. You know, they spoof prices and things like that in order to make short term trading profits. They, somebody was a Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan Chase, one or the other um, just got caught doing that with gold and they admitted they were doing it. You know, so that kind of um, that kind of manipulation happens all over the place, but it doesn't really affect the um, the long term price trend of an asset. Um, another way that there's manipulation is uh, if you look at the, con- the uh, commitment of traders reports, you see that the hedge funds. And the uh, commercials who buy gold and silver for fabrication play this game with each other, where um, the commercials try to trick the hedge funds into doing something, and then profit by uh, by taking the other side of the bet. And that happens too, and that's a form of manipulation. But it it also doesn't really affect the long term price of gold uh, because uh, you know if you look at the long term price of gold, it's gone from um, two fifty ish to two thousand. Um, in this century now the, the third kind of manipulation is more serious that's where governments especially central banks will give their gold or lend their gold to bullion banks like J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and those bullion banks then sell that gold in the market um, and push the price of gold down and that that um, other things being equal um, lowers the price suppresses the price of gold and in that way it keeps the dollar and the euro and the end from looking too bad. You know, when, when gold is going up, that's the same thing as saying the dollar is going down, right? So the guys running currencies don't like gold to just spike because it draws interest to the fact that they're mismanaging their currencies. Now that I think happens. Okay. And that, um, minimizes the, um, the upward momentum of gold in some cases. But obviously, it hasn't stopped gold from going up because gold is up—you um, know—at uh, twenty five hundred, it's up a thousand percent from where it was in two thousand. So, you know, that's um, that is a nice long term bull market. So you can't look at that and say, "Oh, well, it's manipulated, so it'll never get to go any higher." Because, and and the other thing about that is that when these central banks lend money to the bullion or lend gold to the bullion banks and the gold bullion banks sell it, that creates a short position for them in gold. Um, and because there's a limited amount of gold at the world's, at the Western world's central banks, um, there are two limiting factors there. One is the fact that it's a big short position for the, the bullion banks, which might make them vulnerable to a squeeze. And the other is that the uh, the European and American central banks um, only have so much gold to throw into the market for this kind of manipulation. So it's self limiting and it's also very dangerous for them because it could give the gold market exactly the kind of short squeeze that they're hoping to avoid. So, you know, in the end, it blows up on them in the short run. It, um, it may limit how far and how fast gold can go up because, you know, realistically gold would be $5,000 an ounce if it was a completely free market, right? um just based on the uh, the amount of fiat currency that's being pumped out into the banking system of the world so um that kind of manipulation is happening but i don't think it prevents us from talking about you know gold resistance and things like that because i think those basic market forces are also at play and i think in the long run gold gets to its intrinsic value which uh, you know the guys who've run the numbers who compared the amount of fiat currency in the world uh, To the amount of gold, and look at what kind amount of gold it would take, or what kind of price it would take for gold to be able to uh, uh, operate in a gold standard. They get fifteen thousand dollars plus an ounce, and I I think that's reasonable. You know, I think we could easily see um, a gold standard imposed on uh, you know a catastrophically failing financial system at some point with gold being fifteen thousand dollars an ounce, which is another way of saying we. Um, devalue the dollar and then define it as one fifteen thousandth of an ounce of gold. That could all happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, no amount of manipulation will stop it from happening when the time comes. It just might affect the timing of that process. John, you
0: mentioned earlier that we're probably going to see $50 silver as a kind of a byproduct of, you know, let's say $2,500 or $3,000 gold. Is that just kind of you see that as a a reversion of the mean of the gold to silver ratio.
1: Yeah, you know the the gold to silver ratio bounces all over the place, but it still operates generally within a, a range, you know, 20 at the low end, which means silver has just totally outperformed gold for a long time, or um, you know, 100-ish at the high end, which means gold has been outperforming silver for quite a while. Well, we're you know, we're close to 90 right now. Uh, which means that um, even without gold going up, it's a safe bet that silver will outperform gold for a while, but let gold go up. And that gives silver this really, really broad band in which to trade higher. And um, the the other reason that gold will tend to outperform, or silver will outperform gold from here, um, it's kind of psychological. You know, people... See gold going up, and they decide maybe it's finally time to get some. But then they see what two thousand dollars buys, and it's a single grand, you know, one gold coin sitting there, and and then they think, well, how much silver would I get? And it's ninety ounces. You know, they, they envision a pile of ninety ounces of gorgeous, brand new silver coins on their table, and there's no comparison. Which one is prettier, right? And which one is more impressive? So people start buying silver just because it's relatively so cheap. And then silver starts to move because of that. And then the momentum traders come in. And see, that's how you get the silver versus gold bull market um, that you get at the peak of these cycles. There are a lot of different factors that um, play into silver outperforming gold. And I don't think there's any reason why that won't happen again, because you know 90 Silver Eagles, for instance, is an incredibly impressive site. And you can have that for the price of one Krugerrand right now. So I, I think anybody in their right mind who has a sense of aesthetics is going to want to be buying silver at this level. Mm -hmm.
0: So John, as part of the precious metals complex here, obviously we speak a lot about miners on this show and, you know, within this complex, they, you know, have the possibility of providing even higher returns. So, you know, do we need the, miners at this point to really confirm gold's move up above $2000 and and what do you think you can attribute the underperformance the relative underperformance of the miners up until let's say Thursday of last week to gold's performance over this year
1: well i'll take your second question first um, it, you know mining became a very hard business over the last few years because um you know gold was $1,700, $1,800 an ounce, and, and you would think that um, a lot of miners who who built mines on the premise of $1,200 an ounce gold would be just raking in free cash flow in that environment, right? So you'd think miners with $1,800 gold would be a really good sector, but what, what also happened during that time is that the costs of mining went way up. Labor costs have, have spiked, and oil went way up. Oil was $90 a barrel for a while, which means... Um, the um, diesel fuel that you need to run earth moving equipment, for instance, got super expensive. And so the, these the, these really wide operating margins that generate massive free cash flow didn't happen. Mar- margins stayed pretty limited. Miners didn't make all that much money. And because of that, mining just didn't look as attractive to people who look at earnings and free cash flow and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the the mining stocks just did not do well, and the uh, the junior miners and the uh, exploration companies just got crushed. Because if you don't want to buy Newmont because you don't think mining is a good business, then why in the world would you want to buy some little no name, you know, highly leveraged company that's going to have to raise money? Uh, sometime in the next year uh, and and so that made the world very tough for the exploration companies for instance who just can't they can't get financing to save their lives right now unless they do it on really onerous terms from you know a royalty company or something like that um, so just as a general concept the mining stocks stopped being attractive now um, that's about to change for a couple of reasons reasons and one is that oil has gone back down it's like 70 ish dollars a barrel right now which means the uh the cost of fuel is less than it once was so um the margins that um, miners are operating under uh let's say at 1800 dollars an ounce gold um those margins are a little better now you know there's more free cash flow to be had at the same time gold is up um, above that old $1,800 when people were making the previous calculations. Now it's 2000 If it stays at 2000 uh, that means margins are wider for two reasons. Costs are a little lower and the price of what they're selling, what the miners are selling is a little higher. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you've got the possibility of legit free cash flow. So this is a better environment than it, it was a couple of years ago. And people just haven't Caught on to that yet, and part of that is that nobody trusts that two thousand dollar gold level. You know, Um, it 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 hasn't become support yet. But let it gold go to twenty two hundred or even twenty one fifty and stay there for a little while, and all of a sudden two thousand seems easily doable, and and you can legitimately use that number when you're calculating what kind of free cash flow you expect from a miner. Um, So all of a sudden, free cash flow is a real thing, and the miners look more attractive. Um, So that bleeds down into the um, junior miners and the exploration companies companies because all of a sudden you can uh, you can um, justify a takeout value for them because the big miners are using up their resources quickly and they don't have reserves um they don't have the reserves they need so they have got to go get those reserves so at some point they have to buy out a bunch of the juniors and the explorers but now the calculation gets a lot easier if gold is going to be 2200 dollars two years from now that makes the um the free cash flow that's possible on a new mine that an exploration company is bringing online it makes it conceivable and it also makes it really rich you know all of a sudden um this deposit that was viable at 1700 gold is actually extremely profitable at 2200 gold um, Once that mindset takes place, then you're going to see a buying frenzy as the big guys start buying out the little guys to to move the needle on their reserves, you know, so they aren't just zeroing themselves out by using up more than they find year after year. Uh, And and so the um, explorers, at least the higher quality explorers, will be for a little while kind of like the dot coms back in the 1990s. You know, you just have to have silver or gold in your name and everybody wants to own you. those days are coming too. And it, it takes a higher gold price and oil that doesn't go through the roof. You know, none of this works if there's a Middle Eastern war and they they uh, close the Strait of Hormuz and oil goes to 200. You know, forget about it if that happens, but um, keep oil at its current price. And it's a very easy transition from today's prices for the juniors to three times that price. And I think that's a very possible scenario in the next few years.
0: Yeah, it seems like kind of going back to that quote that you brought up of hard times creating hard men, it really you know, makes me think of the junior miner sector or the mining sector in general right now of this last decade in the miners really forcing discipline on a lot of these companies. And then once we get into a bull market, these companies seeing that they have to you know get back to replacing their reserves and seeing a relatively stable higher price being comfortable to do so
1: yeah um the way it works for the uh, the senior miners is that uh, they're reluctant to aggressively buy to increase their reserves until everybody else is doing it, and then there's this feeding frenzy right at the end. You know, last time it was it was really overdone. Where they overpaid for assets that didn't work out, and it, it cost them massive write downs and things like that. So they're really reluctant to go there again. But human nature, being what it is, um, you know, they're people. They're they're still um, they're still vulnerable. To the kind of feeling that, oh my God, my competitor just got bigger than me by making this, uh, this buyout and, and, uh, he's on the cover of Forbes magazine and everybody's talking about him and, but I should be bigger than him. And, you know, uh, that kind of thing happens because CEOs are, are by their nature. Um, egomaniacs. You know, you don't get to be running a multi-billion-dollar company unless you are seriously convinced you deserve to be doing that, and that you deserve to be doing even more. Uh, so they're vulnerable to that, and and uh, that is one of the um, the real selling points for high-quality exploration companies. That is that at some point in this cycle, the feeding, feeding frenzy will start, and the, the majors are going to be willing to pay anything for what you've got, you know, for a a deposit that moves the needle that actually allows them to get bigger. Um, And there are just a handful of those. So let a couple of them be bought out. And then the other seven that exist out there have to be bought out right away, right? Because nobody's going to let them sit, uh, sit there and allow Newmont to just snap up all of them, right? And then be five times as big as the other companies. They, They won't let that happen. So that kind of a feeding frenzy, when it does happen, is the kind of reward that long-suffering investors in junior miners um, hope for and and that maybe they only see in once in their lives. Rick Rule has seen three of these, at least, according to him. Uh, And that's the reason he's a billionaire. But most investors in, say, exploration companies will be happy if it happens one time and they ride along with it. You know, as as an example... Of what to expect there's this company called great bear resources that found a, a really nice deposit in canada kept hitting with their drilling got bigger and bigger and then got bought out for something like um a hundred times what their price three years previously was so that i um, you know I, I know somebody who put four thousand dollars into great bear and got one hundred and forty thousand dollars out Um, and that's the kind of thing that uh, you know that's never going to be common but it's going to happen several more times in the next cycle and all you need to do is have one of those you know and if you've got all three forget it you are you are a genius investor who never has to work again for a day in his life so that's the kind of thing that um that once you see it becomes an addiction for junior minor investors and i'm i'm Uh, you know, I'm definitely an addict in that way and I can't wait for the next thing like that to happen. And I think sometime in the next three or four years, um, we see stuff like that. So we just have to hang on until then.
0: I, I had the privilege of speaking with Rick last week, actually, and we spoke a lot about the idea that, you know, what makes a one or a two in his rating system? and talking about these high quality junior or exploration companies so it would be interesting to get your take on that as well john are there particular things that you're looking for when we're at a time where we're probably going to look back and see this as as a real gift of a price level for a lot of these companies and projects
1: well yeah i mean there's some there are some basic things you want in say an exploration company and one is um management who's done something like this before um or has some other credential that that really legitimizes them you know it shouldn't be their first rodeo um and another is um, drill results that just keep coming in other words okay they, they hit a couple of good holes um and now you're interested but then next, month, they hit some more, and then they're doing their infill drilling, and it makes it look even better than the step out drilling, you know, that, that kind of thing, a story that just keeps evolving in a positive way. And the the third is a, 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 um, it's in a good place. You know, you uh, geopolitics is more and more risky for the miners now than it's ever been before. And so you, you want a jurisdiction that takes good care of its miners and is not going to just step in and uh, nationalize the resource or whatever. And those are um, fairly rare in today's world. So a lot of people consider Canada to be such a place and Nevada in the US is uh, attractive. Um, So you put those things together. um, And oh, and then the uh, the drill results lead to a big enough resource that would actually make a difference. In other words, it would move the needle for a a major miner to buy you out. So you put those things together and and you get something that um, at the beginning, uh, nobody knows enough about them to really value them highly. So they're incredibly cheap. Uh, But as the drill results come in and look better and better, um, and as a couple of other representative buyouts happen nearby, then all of a sudden, a lot of people who understand what's happening jump in. This pushes the price up, which leads to a lot of generalist money who are chasing momentum to come in. And then you get this really nice run until the uh, the buyout. There's another one of them. You know, you know, everybody who does stuff like this, who's in this space, has stories about the one that got away. And mine is Glamis Gold. That happened probably a decade ago now, but, uh, you know, I bought 10,000 ounces of or 10,000 shares of it at a buck 50 It went to three and I sold it. Cause I and thought I was a genius. Cause I doubled my money mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. It went to 140 before oh, wow. it was bought out by gold court, <laughs> you know? So all I had to do was golf for three years, and you know, never look at the TV or anything. And I, and I would have had $400,000. So that that's the kind of thing that, um, You know, you see it once and you have to do things to make it happen again because it's just such a great feeling or, or such a horrible feeling in the case of glamis gold. You know, you miss once on something like that and you never want to miss again. So, um, that's, um, well, this is starting to be like an AA meeting for me here where I'm just talking about my addictions and how they happen. But, um, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that happens in the junior mining space. And it's the kind of thing that, um, based on where we are in the cycle may not be that far away. You know, a lot of the pieces are falling into a, into place from a macro standpoint that might give us a year like that, where there's 10 baggers everywhere you look, um, within the next few years. So, you know, um, don't randomly buy junior miners. Okay. Make sure they, they meet all the criteria I just talked about. They got to be the high quality, the cream of the crop, um, in that space. And, um, and then pay attention after you, uh, you you buy them. Like on, on, on my Substack, and in in year one, I ended up naming a lot of companies like that. And now year two is coming pretty soon, and it's going to be about fracking them. You know, looking at how their drill results change the perception of the company. Did it improve its value? Does it make it more understandable? Um, does it make it um, you know much more of a takeover candidate or less? So you know things like that. Uh, Because that's what you have to do. You got to then get rid of the ones who don't work out Mm -hmm. and add to the ones that do work out in anticipation of some big buyout. Um, It's a fun process because a lot of these little companies are just inherently really interesting. Um, And when, you know, let's say you have five potential buyouts by the end of the process, three of them happen in one year. You just had a a life-changing year uh, as an investor, and that's what we should all be trying for.
0: So John in that case of Glamis gold what do you think was your biggest lesson like were you able to actually take some concrete lessons from that in understanding when to hold something like that when you should have actually sold it like walk us through if you can any of the concrete pieces that you took out of
1: that Yeah okay two two lessons there one is that when you know, when you buy a little thing like that and it pops don't just sell it all. There there might be a good reason that it's popping. Okay, so take the original bet off the table. Mm -hmm. And then you're playing with house money. And it's psychologically a lot easier. You know, if it doesn't work out, it wasn't your money, it was the house's money, you know, and and so you can handle that Mm -hmm. loss as a as the worst case scenario. Uh, And then start paying attention to what it's doing. Because what I did with Glamis is I just took the profit, I just sold it moved on to the next thing without looking to see whether it was an evolving company that was getting bigger and better. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, you analyze the drill results because these companies put, especially the good ones, they're able to attract a little bit of capital that lets them do a lot of drilling. So you get frequent drill results and you look at those drill results and see what they mean. And if, uh, you know, if they're finding wide intervals of really high grade gold, 100 meters away from their previous furthest out drill hole, you know, things like that. If that's what's happening, then the story is evolving in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. And um, sit tight. You know, the, the old adage, be right and sit tight. Um, you are right so far, and so you're sitting tight, you know, and you just watch it. And uh, if it, if the story continues to evolve in a positive direction, there's no reason to bail. You know, you're playing with house money and the story is getting better and better and then you hope it comes to the attention of some empire builder out there among the uh, five or six uh, really major miners and that they come in and snap you up at a nice premium and so that's how you play something like that you you know don't put all your eggs in one basket don't bet the farm on on something that probably has at best a 10% Um, probability of working out as a new great bearer or a new glamorous, but um, you know, don't run away from it either, you know, stay attached to it and use the fact that you own some of it to give you an incentive to really learn about it and then pay attention to what you're learning. So this is a, you know, it's a fun process. When you've got 10 of these out there um, there, there's a new news story every day that is fascinating because you've got money riding on it. And because it's an evolving story of a potentially really interesting company that might have a very interesting final chapter. Mm -hmm. So it it makes life fun when you've got some of these that are working out. And, uh, you know, the way you make sure you've got some that are working out is you keep only the ones that are working out and discard the rest without a backward glance.
0: Excellent, John. Well, I really appreciate your advice and sharing those lessons with us. I want to be respectful of your time, but there's, We'll have to do a round two at some point because, you know, there's lots, lots more to get through and to pick your brain about here. Is there anything else you'd like to kind of leave our audience with before we wrap up here?
1: Well, you know, one thing and I think we may have kind of covered this already, but um, all this gloom and doom, you know, the, the financial world is coming to en- to an end, et cetera, et cetera, which is legit. I mean, that's legitimate analysis of today's world. But that shouldn't be the thing that dominates your thought processes because that will just drive you crazy. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to get out of bed in the morning if you think, um, you know, it's a Mad Max kind of world that's coming. Um, think of this as an investment thesis. Crises create opportunities, and some of those opportunities are life changing. So go watch the movie, The Big Short, and see how it went for them. And, you know, try to become one of those people. That that was a happy ending for those guys. Even though the world was not a happy place for a few years that they lived in, something similar is coming um, with both the crises and the opportunities. So focus on the opportunities, and you'll be a lot happier day-to-day than than otherwise. That's
0: an excellent, excellent point to Round up on here. And I appreciate you sharing that perspective with our audience. Of course, your Substack at rubino.substack.com, everything gold, silver, macroeconomic. And I believe in the premium version, you also share some of your minor picks, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's how it works. The actionable stuff is behind a paywall, but there's a ton of free stuff that you can sign up for that is, uh, you know, macro and, you know, kind of general investing ideas which I'm learning about along with the audience in a lot of cases. Excellent. Of course,
0: we'll have that link to your sub stack in the show notes. John, thanks Great. so much for your time and your expertise today. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Tom. Talk to you soon.
0: This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.